This is Passing for Normal, conversations with artists, activists, and awakeners about how they are seeding change in the world. I'm your host, Sharon Weil, and here I speak with fascinating, innovative change makers. We talk about how to make change, meet change, and how to find the courage to create change in your life and with those around you. Bringing new ideas into the mainstream, that's Passing for Normal. Hello and welcome to Passing for Normal, where today I'm going to be in conversation with psychologist, organizational consultant, and the author of The Gift of Crisis, Finding Your Best Self in the Worst of Times, Dr. Susan Mecca. And we're going to be talking about building resilience, that quality of life that allows us to make a comeback no matter what the circumstance. Welcome, Susan Mecca. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. It's so great to be speaking with you again. You know, I wanted I to. Ha- we had a great conversation. And we had a great conversation. Right. And so I wanted to have this conversation specifically about resilience because when we were speaking a few months ago in an earlier podcast, you said something like resilience. Oh, that's a whole other conversation. And so I wanted to have <laughs> that conversation. Because in the work that I've been doing with changeability and trying to provide tools for people to help navigate change, and certainly in the work that you're doing with helping guide people through crisis and, um, uh, and teaching them how to perhaps thrive as, um, at, the, at the end of a crisis, um, resilience is the key to being able to adapt. And... Um, so I really want to uh, be able to have this conversation with you. Well, great. I've been looking forward to it as well. You know, I feel like in this, in our day and age of, um, of so much fast-moving change and all the natural disasters that we've seen over this year and certainly the political upheavals that we've been experiencing um, in the last year, that the quality of developing resilience, the quality of developing how to be adaptable is really our greatest tool. Do you agree? I do. I think it's one of the absolute most critical ones that we can develop because change is going to just accelerate. And so if we cannot be resilient during those changes, we're going to end up having more and more, not only mental problems, emotional problems, but physical problems as well. Yeah. And so um, before we jump into the conversation, I wanted to speak to our listeners about our resilience credentials, meaning how is it that you and I can come to talk about the subject with some sense of personal authority? So um, I'd like you to begin. Absolutely. So, you know, in, in my studies as a psychologist, resilience is one of the things that you study. And it it's got an interesting background when I briefly go through is that it came out of some research that was done with children where a, a psychologist by the name of Norm Garnaby went around asking in these economically depressed areas, he would go to schools and he'd say, were there any children in the school whose background initially raised red flags that they, be, that they might become problem children, but instead they became a source of pride. And that was one of the first times we started looking at resilience. And, when I was studying in psychology in the 90s, I was fascinated by this turn because we'd always looked at, you know, what causes problems, but instead we started looking at 
what allows people to be resilient and to come out of difficult situations well. And if, if I trace some of my interest in the book, The Gift of Crisis, it can be traced back to that, of this question of how do we resolve, how are we resilient, how can we survive issues? And as you know, and as I mentioned in the last podcast, you know, those, that, that education and the training and the work that I've done with as a psychologist with you know, any number of families in, in pretty disastrous situations, that put to test in a very personal way when my husband and son both went through cancer at the same time. And so the three years, you know, I found out firsthand what built resilience in me and what built and what actually sort of decreased the amount of resilience that I felt. And it felt like I walked out of those three years that was a much better understanding of my personal resilience, but also what helped my clients and my friends and colleagues be more or less resilient when hard times happen. Yeah. So you speak with uh, deep uh, personal authority and, um, Yes. I, I'm really grateful for, as I said to you the last time we spoke, you know, the life that you have lived that's allowed you to have such, um, such insight and compassion and offer such help. Yes. Thank yes. You. Yes. And so as for me, um, I think one of the things that I want to mention is that, uh, you know, where my interest in uh, changeability and helping people adapt to change comes from uh, being a, a, a teacher of a movement work called Continuum for 20 years. And it is really about um, looking at the body, looking at biointelligence as um, the fluids of the body and being able to have a more fluid nature and being able to actually use the body as a primary source for all the experiences and all of the learning and all of the uh, movement that's created in every sense of life. And so that is really a basic way that I look at life. But in addition, um, mm -hmm. I lost my father to cancer a month after I got married. And I lost wow. my sister to breast cancer. And in fact, um, when I found out that I was pregnant with my daughter, she found out that she had cancer. And I, yeah. um, I triumphed through a, a very sudden divorce. And, uh, mm -hmm. and also I was uh, in a terrible car accident when I was 13 years old and broke my pelvis and my jaw mm -hmm. and kind of had to learn to walk again. And so mm -hmm. I understand uh, that path of coming back, you know, that path yeah. of, of, of um, being down or being so changed or life circumstances being so altered and finding your way back. So um, I did want to share that. Uh, you've had multiple opportunities. And that's a great point, Jim, because yep, in many ways, that's how people develop more resilience is because we all go through serious life events. Some of us, you and I in particular, and many people listening, go through more than others go through. But we all deal with shocks, we deal with changes, we deal with upsets, we deal with difficulties. And as each time one of those happens, I think, and the research bears out, we actually have the opportunity to build more resilience. So let's define some terms here. So what are you, what are you calling resilience? 
Um, for me, the National Resilience Institute uses a pretty simple one that I like, which is the strength and capacity to respond to, cope with, and grow through adversity. Great, great. And I would just add to that the ability to come back, the ability to return, mm-hmm. because, you know, we also look at nature and we look at the resilience of nature and the resilience of nature isn't always in response to adversity. Sometimes it's in response to natural cycles like winter, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the, the leaves mm-hmm. come back and the buds come back and the, the, uh, the birds come back and it's all within a resilient um, ecosystem that has to do with return. Absolutely. And I think you and I probably have both been experienced when we have plants where, you know, you you plant a bunch of things in your garden and one winter they seem to bounce back perfectly and other winters they don't. And then some plants that just seem to take whatever you throw at them. They're just incredibly resilient to whatever nature happens to go through. Right. So what is, what is the inherent quality or the internal qualities of that resilient plant or that resilient individual? What is it that um, feeds that strength and uh, as well as that mm-hmm. flexibility? Well, so in some of the, when they've looked at one of the traits that resilient people, so I can just talk about people and I don't have as much knowledge about environments, but people, it goes over over and over again. The number one factor that seems to feed resilience for people is a community of support. And to go back to that original research on the kids, one of the things that they found was is that just even in the worst of situations, just having one adult in their life who was nurturing and supportive, even if it was a teacher or a rabbi or whatever, that seemed to make the difference in their ability to bounce back and grow through adversity. So community support seems to be the most important. But there's some other things that are sort of, they're both could be innate, but they can also be developed. And interestingly enough, there's things like the capacity to make realistic plans and then take steps to carry them out. A positive view of yourself and a confidence in your own strengths and abilities. Um, skills in communication and problem solving. And then the capacity to manage strong feelings and impulses. That seems to be over and over some of the key factors about people who are naturally more resilient. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, that's very important. The, the, um, the ability to tolerate, right, and move with strong emotion. Mm-hmm. And to be able to move beyond it, I think you and I both and, and our, the people we, we know and love, it doesn't mean that you don't have horribly horrible situations or incredibly difficult emotions to manage. You don't live in fear. You don't live with you know, deep disappointment or heartbreak or whatever. So it's, but it's the ability to, to, to be able to manage through that and to control it to some extent where it doesn't take over your entire life. You know, maybe you're really angry about something that's happened, but you don't let that anger for long periods of time burn up everything in your existence. And you can say, yes, I'm really angry, and I'm going to think about that, I'm going to work on that, I'm going to you know, go exercising, pound it out of me, but I'm not going to let it run through my entire life. I think it's, that, it's the feeling it and managing it that seems to be important in that area. Yeah, and you know, because of my training as a somatic educator in Continuum, you know, I look very much to the body itself um, uh, as the 
as the source of change, you know, as the recorder of change and as the source of change. And so, you know, when we have a trauma, when we have uh, fears, um, the tissue of the body literally shuts down. It literally freezes. It literally, the connective tissue contracts and can become almost like an armor. And it's from that state that we're often being asked to now find flexibility. You know, something happens, you get angry, you get disappointed, you get shocked, um, you get debilitated in an illness, and you're, in, you're not at your best, right? Um, and so no. now you're being asked, okay, now find flexibility, now find hope, now find a new way. It's not, it's not the um, most conducive state, right? But... Mm-hmm. The tissues of the body themselves have plasticity. They, they are designed to be able to expand, expand as well as contract. And we, we know that we can actually shift our states, our emotional states, our physical states, by the way that we use our breath, by the way that we inhale and mm. exhale and, and honor the pause between the breath, and that we know that we can um, find flexibility in thought and in creativity and like you say entertaining hope and possibility and so it's it can be a very body-based initiation when you feel like you are frozen or shut down i love that idea sharon it's not one that i've explored as much in my practice but i think it makes a lot of intuitive sense to me that you know a lot of times it's like it's sort of getting on stage when you're petrified. The action of putting yourself into motion to go towards something starts to loosen things up. It's like, okay, I'm really going to go do this. Let's go do it. It's taking that first step or doing the exercises that you do with your people that you work with of, of opening up the body and letting the, I suspect the mind follow from that. Right, because, you know, there there are times when we need to harness, when we need to gather, when we need to activate, when we need to move forward. And there are also times when we need to dissolve, when we need to, to rest and understanding that there is a time for everything, right? And oftentimes what happens mm-hmm. is that people think that they have to go into action and that they have to, they have to activate right now. And it's not time, nor are they in a place to do it. And in fact, Absolutely. and in fact, rest, you know, something about this culture, American culture, we don't want to rest. We think there's something really wrong with Mm-mm. sleep and with rest when it is in fact the place where the most rich nurturing happens. It's where Mm -hmm. uh, new neural pathways are created. It's where we assimilate information. It is the pause in the breath of action, right? And so when we can become more restored, when we can have more, um, more to work with, right? More nutrients, then there Mm -hmm. is something to actually activate. And until then, um, right? It's like, the trees, you know, they, they withdraw their sap. It goes deep into the earth. It goes deep into the tree. You know, if, if a tree doesn't have a proper winter, it can't have a proper spring. Right. Yes. And likewise with humans, right? If, if we don't, if we don't take a time 
to rest and restore, we can't, there's nothing to harness. And that's absolutely true. In fact, research has found that there's a direct correlation between a lack of recovery period and increased incidence of health and safety problems. I mean, the recovery period is absolutely critical to be resilient, to being resilient. And so I think that that's something that, that is so counterintuitive when you're in the middle of a crisis to say, okay, there's things that are swirling around me. I feel like I've got to get going, things I've got to get done. I think I'll go take a nap. Right. But most Americans never. Right. Well, you know, I was just, I was on an airplane and I was watching uh, The Darkest Hour about Winston Churchill on the, you oh. know, on the plane. And, um, you know, he was an older man when he became prime minister and he, he was in the habit of taking a nap every day. And, you know, during mm-hmm. the, uh, you know, when the Nazis were, were almost at their door and he was, and, you know, and the, there was no vote of favor for him. Um, he really needed to take a nap, and he didn't. And he was mm-hmm. not really that functional. <laughs> you know, yeah. he didn't have, you know, um, he needed that that place. And, you know, it's also, rest is also um, the dream time space, right? It's the mm-hmm. space where the imagination can flow. It's the space where new ideas can come and just new anything, right? New possibility. Yeah. Where something new, <laughs> some new hint can emerge in that place of, of, of rest or of pause when you're do, 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 doing is not necessarily when those ideas can come to you. No. And, and you think about it, just even in simple situations, if you've had a long, hard day, and we're not going to talk about a big shock, but you've had a hard day and you come home, and you're with your significant other or your family members, and there's and they've got a problem or there's something going on. You know, we know we're not at our best then. And when at least when I'm operating at my sort of most intentional, that's when I say, you know what? Can we talk about this tomorrow? Because I know right now I'm not going to bring my best self to this until I've had a chance for some recovery. And sure enough, the next morning, to me, it looks much less dire, and there's lots more possibilities for problem-solving than there were the night before. Right, and depending upon the, the trauma, the shock, the, um, uh, the health crisis, or, or an accident, or an injury, whatever it is that you feel that you are needing or wanting to make a comeback from, depending upon the severity of it, um, you know, rest may not just be a nap. It could be months, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it could Absolutely. be. There's no timing on this, right? Yeah, and here's something interesting that I found, Sharon. Is that I think I've shared with you before that right after my husband died, within a couple months, um, I was laid off. And it was at that point I went, okay, this is a message from the universe. And so for the next six months, I really took it pretty easily because I realized that my sort of resilience was very low. My, my self-care was almost non-existent. And so for six months, I saw a few clients here and there, but mostly I ate right, I floated in the pool, I took naps, I cleaned closets. I did things to build my, my sort of stores of energy back up. Mm-hmm. And I've seen too many people come out of a really serious time 
you know, where they perhaps not been able to be as effective at work or not been as available to family. And they feel like that's the time that they now have to make up for everything they didn't do during that time of crisis. And yet that's the time they need to rest. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you were talking about the ability to withstand strong emotion. And I think sometimes people don't want to rest because they don't want to feel. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, exactly. They don't want to spend time with their with themselves because there might be a dialogue that needs to happen that they're not ready for. And and again, it's trusting that, you know, it's you, shoving yourself into a situation where now I'm going to go process this terrible thing that happened. You know, that rarely works. Um, it's going to come out when it does, but knowing, okay, when it starts to come out, this may be a sign I need to take a step back and I need to allow it to emerge and I need to be soft with it instead of just trying to shove it back into the corner to say, I don't have time for you right now. Um, right. It's that balance between when do you let it out and when do you not let it out. Right. And, um, right. And how can you, can you titrate the feelings? You know, can you titrate the grief? Can you let it... Um, come in waves and understand that it's waves, you know, that grief arrives in waves, that it can hit you hard, um, but then it fades, it may come back, right? You know, because when we speak of resilience, we're speaking that we're coming back from something, some kind of change that is like a death right? It could be a death. Mm -hmm. I mean, in like in your case, your Mm -hmm. husband died. In my case, you know, my father died, my sister died, but also, you know, the end of my marriage and the sort of sudden shocking end of my marriage was also like a death. The, you know, the car accident that I was in, in its moment was like a death. And in fact, when I was in the emergency room, I was unconscious and I was in the emergency room and I didn't even know where I was. And I just thought, am I dead? Like, what is what yeah i was surrounded by white curtains and i heard these voices <laughs> coming from someplace talking about this girl that was in the car accident and i thought am i dead like where am i um yeah and, you know anyone who's been in a serious injury knows that it's like you're walking back from somewhere right mm-hmm. and um and so there are strong emotions associated with any kind of death or diminishment. Well, one, of the, one of the tools that I tell my clients about when, they've, when they do have a lot of emotions to deal with, and yet <clears throat> they, want to, they want to honor it, but at the same time not let it run its life, is, is something that I call scheduling. And we'll, we'll figure out a time during the day that I'm really going to sit with these emotions. I might journal about them. I might just sit in quiet, I might go for a walk, and those are the, I'm going to do that at, from 9 to 10 in the morning, you know, that's the time that I have set aside for it, because a lot of times my clients will find that these, these thoughts become so pervasive and so invasive that they feel like they've lost control of their life, and the emotions are running it, and so saying, you know, we have this little conversation with it, so when this, you know, the anger comes up as an example, to say, you know what? You're scheduled for 9 o'clock tomorrow morning. I'd like you to come back then, but right now I'm doing something else. 
<laughs> and it, they find that it actually helps them mm-hmm. to say, and at 9 o'clock, they want to go, okay, we're going to talk about that angry. Well, I, this is why I'm angry. This is what I think should have happened. And, you know, I'm going to really get that out. But at 10 o'clock, they're going to say, okay, you know, let's put a container around it. And it came out of some work I did with a young woman who was left her family behind in Uganda and could not contact them on a regular basis. And the fear of what had happened to them was so pervasive that she felt like she wasn't able to be a good mother or a good wife. And so we scheduled it for 10 minutes before each one of her prayer periods. And so at the end of the, the worrying time, she would go into her, her when she's Muslim, her, her daily prayers and hand those worries over to Allah. Mm-hmm. And it really helped her manage that fear that had become pervasive. Um, so you're so talking I, I about two things. You're talking about scheduling, but you're also talking about a sense of spirituality and a sense of a belief in something larger than yourself. And I think that this is really an important thing to bring up in terms of resilience as well, is that that sense of uh, belonging to something larger than yourself, the sense, the belief um, in something larger than yourself uh, creates a... um, well, it's a larger community <laughs> that you were, you know, you were one of the first things you were saying. It is, it's the largest, the largest sense of community. And that is very hopeful. You know, it is. And I, yeah, I love the way of thinking about that because for me, when I was going to mind that my angels and guides were part of my community. Not only did I have people day in and day out who were there and bringing me Italian food and good wine and, <laughs> you know, listening to me wine and whinge. But I also had this sense of connection to, to spirit that when I was at, you know, at my lowest, I could say, I need some help here and would get a signal, a feather on the path, or I would get some kind of synchronistic happening that really helped me feel like, okay, I've got a community that's got my back. And, you know, and it's important if you think about that in terms of where our society is going with Facebook and, and technology, you, it's impossible, I think, to develop warm, loving relationships on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. It's really something that I think you can have people who catch up with you and care about you and send you, you know, thoughts and cares, but that day in, day out, when you're trying to, to find your way through a shock, that requires some kind of palpable connection that I don't think comes easily through those social media networks. No, social media is good for uh, passing information, you know, and it's good for, um, yeah, it's good for passing information, I think, and making people aware of things and, um, but it is not a replacement for touch. It is not a replacement for uh, those who are bringing you wine and and food. It is not a replacement for uh, someone to... uh, sit with you or to, for you to sit in a group of people and really feel the resonance of connection, right? Because a lot of times when we're in some sort of crisis or in some sort of trauma, um, we can feel very isolated, right? We can feel a lack of connection or the fear of a lack of connection. And so what also needs to be restored is connection, Mm-hmm. whether that connection Absolutely. is to other people, whether that connection is to, um, you know, greater health or whether that connection is to um, the natural world. And that reminds me of another thing that I think is really critical to resilience, which is self-compassion. Mm-hmm. Because 
you know, self-compassion is recognizing you're not, this is a sense of common humanity is part of that self-compassion is that it's not just me, these things happen to. These things happen to lots of people. And so our tendency when something terrible is happening is, you know, like a, like a divorce or something that's, you know, a bankruptcy or a loss of a job or something where it would be easy to, to, to look for blame both within and without is to recognize that this happens to so many people. You are not the only one going through this. You're, you haven't somehow been singled out by the universe to this for this terrible deed. And I think when we recognize that we're not the only one this is happening to, that can help us build a sense of compassion. That we are, just like I would have compassion for someone else going through this, I can have compassion for myself. Yes, absolutely. You know, we're very hard on ourselves in terms of what we expect and, and, um, and uh, whether, we, whether we're hard on ourselves for um, an incident that happened or whether we're hard on ourselves about how quickly we think we should be recovering. Um, yeah. It is, um, right, it's to understand that, that these are passages. These are life passages. Everyone, like you said in the beginning of our conversation, everyone is going to go through something and many somethings, yeah. right? You know, you don't, yeah. you don't get to live a full human life and not be affected in many ways by all the colors of, of what this life is, including yeah. loss and, um, and death and diminishment and exhilaration and creativity and, you know, all of these things. We get to, we get to experience it all. Um, and so you're right to be able to have compassion for yourself and for others is, um, is definitely a, uh, a guiding force. You know, there's another one is that, that, that fits in there as well. I think it's this idea of getting perspective. We talked a little bit about that, but you know, getting perspective of not isolating. And I think about a, a friend of mine who, when he had, he found out he had stage four colorectal cancer, somebody said, well, did you ever ask yourself, why me? And he said, no, my answer was, why not me? Mm-hmm. You know, why, what makes me so special that something bad would not happen to me? And it wasn't saying he deserved it or he thought it was good or positive or anything. He was saying he had perspective on it. Why wouldn't this happen to me? I don't deserve it, but there's nothing that there's nothing that says there's a little, you know, protective thing around me that no bad thing should ever happen to me. And the people who I find in my practice who are more who are less resilient are the ones who sort of everything seems to be, you know, it shouldn't have happened. This bad thing should have never happened. Whatever it is, even if it's small or large, it's, it's a terrible, horrible, awful thing that this bad thing happened. And the people who are more resilient are saying, yeah, this is really crappy. I hate this. But, and this is where we get into Seligman. He calls it the three Ps. You know, one of the ways you build resilience is to avoid those three Ps. Personalization, which is, it's all my fault. Okay, so the oftentimes people with less resilience think everything that happened is my fault. You know, if I had cancer, it's my fault. If I, you know, the, the, I got laid off, it's my fault. And that's not helpful because there's so many different factors. Obviously, there are some situations where something bad happened that you could have avoided. But in many cases, it's just things that happened. The second one is this idea of pervasiveness. But it's, it's happened and now, you know, it, it 
pervades every single aspect of my life, uh-huh. that nothing is untouched by this. And then the last one is permanent, meaning nothing will ever be the same again. The resilient people are able, to, the more people with more resilience are able to say, you know, okay, I had, let's figure out the part that I had in this so I can avoid that going forward, but I didn't have complete control. They say, this is a part of my life. It doesn't have to be my whole life. And the hero will say, life will go on. Things may not be the exact same, but there's many things that I can recover that will be similar or better. And so when you can avoid those three, the personalization, pervasiveness, and permanence, I think it really helps build resilience. Right, and just really accepting that life is changing, changing, and changing again that it's always changing, mm-hmm. that the nature of this existence is change. And so, yes, it's not going to be the same, but it will be something different. And it will be, it would be something different again, even if, even if life was great, even if life was 100% perfect, that's going to change too, right? Yeah. It's all changing Absolutely. all the time. <laughs> that's the way yeah. it is. And so, um, you know, how can... I participate with that change in a way that moves me to more towards what, um, what it is I want, even if I am coming from some aspect of death, right? You know, you, you look to nature, at the, you look to nature, the cycle of nature is life, death, and renewal. It's not just life and death. Mm-hmm. It's life, death, and renewal. We're, you know, we're, we're about to come to Easter. We're right in the beginning of spring. It's all about resurrection and renewal and new beginnings. Mm-hmm. And that is the, that is the um, gift of nature. The natural world tells you, yeah. yes, I, you know, this tree has died, but this new one's coming or this, you know, uh, yeah. you know, species and, and colonies of, of creatures and animals and plants, they, they all take the much longer strategy in terms of survival. Mm-hmm. It's like these individuals may not live, but the community's going to live, the, the, um, the species is going to live and, uh, and be renewed in some way. And, a lot of times we don't take the longer view in terms of where, where, where can we see that renewal? Where, well, where will that come up? Um, Mm -hmm. you know, I want to bring in, uh, I was just in Washington DC, uh, this last weekend for the March for our lives. And, you know, this movement of March for our lives, we could look at it as a kind of resilience movement or renewal movement Mm -hmm. coming from the tragic deaths of these kids and, and other, their friends, their, their schoolmates said, no, we're going to transform this tragedy. We're going to turn it into action. This is exactly what we're talking about in terms of finding resilience, harnessing resilience. You know, there, there's a lot of, of grief and loss and shock and fear about their safety, but somehow they've managed to transform that, right? Mm-hmm. And, Absolutely. It's, and, a, it's a great example, yeah. 
And it's different than a resistance movement. You know, we've seen a lot uh, this year of resistance movement. Resistance is like, you know, putting up a stop, you know, when something's happening too fast, you know, or too much, too fast, you put up resistance. But what's the next step? You know, the next step is to come into some, uh, what, new creative action? Um, mm-hmm, absolutely. And, uh, and this resilience movement, uh, let's call, you know, March for Our Lives as a resilience movement of saying, let, let's, um, let not, let's not have these children have died in vain. Let's let yeah. it uh, propel some uh, important action. I think multiple people have said, and I, and, you know, I don't know who to attribute to, but I've heard it multiple times, is you know, don't waste a perfectly good crisis. Mm. You know, if, if you're going to have a crisis in your life, let's look for the opportunity, like you said, for resilience, for renewal, for growth. What good can come out of this? It doesn't mean the crisis was good. It doesn't mean the shock, the, the bankruptcy, the loss of job, the death was good. But it means, is there a possibility of good coming from this? And so, you know, that resilience to me is very much tied to the, that area of, of work called post-traumatic growth, the people who've come out of the bad, who not only just sort of crawl back to where they were before, but go beyond and say, this has made me in ways that I never wanted to know that I could become better. Yes. And whether it's, you know, and and motivated by necessity, but okay, you know, that's, (laughs) Mm -hmm. that's fine. You know, (laughs) we may not motivate ourselves if it's not necessary. I, I, I like to say the universe gets me to change by pulling me. That means something really attractive, pushing me by making it unattractive and uncomfortable, or kicking me in the butt. And I have been the recipient of multiple butt kickings in my life. I try to avoid them, but somehow they seem to engender a fair amount of growth on my part. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I see you as a tremendously resilient um, individual, and I. Uh, I so appreciate all that you offer to um, to so many others, you know, just um, through your book, through the work that you do with individual clients, um, to really help people be able to, like you say, you know, thrive, grow, um, and become resilient in the face of uh, adversity and challenge. So... I thank you. I think this is a, a good place to end the conversation for now. That's cool. Well, and, and I want to thank you too, Sharon. Your, your stuff that you brought about the body and the connected tissues, that's really helped me think about resilience in a different way, um, in a way to sort of think about how the body is teaching us every step of the way how we can become even more resilient. And the sort of a, I remember a book somebody wrote one time called The Body Speaks, and it's, it's just a really helpful um, piece of information to help me in my process. So thank you for, for all that you add. And, and again, back at you, you're one resilient lady. You've gone through multiple trials and come out and said, how do I, how do I find a way to make this better and to help other people find it, a way to make it better? So... Um, Thank you for letting me be on today and have this great conversation. 
Great. So, um, again, to be continued. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I'm sure we'll find something else we need to talk about at some point. <laughs> I think so. I think so. Well, Susan, thank you so much. And again, I want to remind people about your um, wonderful book, The Gift of Crisis, Finding Your Best Self in the Worst of Times, um, that it yeah. is such a uh, resource for, um, for anyone and everyone. Well, thank you very much, Sharon. And uh, again, thanks for having me on and have a great day. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. This has been Passing for Normal, conversations about change. To find out more about author Sharon Weil, go to SharonWeilAuthor.com. You can also find out more about the Changeability books and about all the guests featured in this podcast at that website. Large or small, go out today and make a brave change. Whether creating something new or responding to a changing world, navigating change is the new stability.